session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. So we're just a few days away from the fifth anniversary celebration of Radio Hamra this coming Saturday, April 6th at the Dolby Theater starting precisely at 7.07 p.m., Hope to see you there, and if you don't have your tickets yet, there are some tickets still available uh, through Ticketmaster and also uh, some neighboring Iranian markets here in the Westwood area, but you can call the office if you want to know where else you can get tickets, 310-441-5111 to get more information about the tickets, but again, you can go on Ticketmaster and get the few tickets that are left for this Saturday, April 6th at the Dolby Theater. Looking forward to it. Should be a really fun night. Um, and also, those of you who were waiting for Monday night's show, we had a power outage here in the Radio Hamra studios and at our building and some neighboring buildings, and uh, was out for just a short amount of time. But I was unable to do my show Monday night, so I'm going to start today with the book that I was going to talk about uh, Monday, um, and uh, then also announce the book for this week, which is. When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. Um, I did get to start this one already, but I'm looking forward to sharing that with you on Monday night's show. But the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Super Forecasting The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Super Forecasting. Uh, and I really enjoyed this book. Uh, looking at predictions, how we make predictions, how humans in general, even we look at predictions, but then also very importantly, uh, evaluating people's predictions, which is not something we always do or we always do well for reasons that he explains or they explain in the book. Uh, But I really did like the book because although it was more in the business section when I was looking um, in the bookstore, it was very much about the psychology also of predictions, how we make predictions, what makes someone good at making predictions, but also the ways we get things wrong when it comes to predictions uh, and how we tend to not realize certain things about predictions. So, for example, uh, to give us uh, an example of something he talks about in this book, the wrong side of maybe fallacy. If you were told that there's a 70% chance that it's going to rain tomorrow and it didn't rain a lot of people will say, oh, the, the meteorologist was wrong, which is interesting because we're saying they said it's a 70% chance of rain, and if it doesn't happen, we say they're wrong because, as he says, the wrong side of maybe is that we think of things as 50-50, and if something is said to be more than 50-50, so it's 70% chance, we take that to mean that it's going to happen. 
But of course, when the meteorologist says there's a 70% chance of rain, they're also telling us there's a 30% chance that it won't rain. And if I told you there's a 30% chance that something's going to happen and then it happened, you wouldn't say, oh, that's impossible. That's crazy. You'd say, okay, you said 30% chance. So very often we see this even in the last presidential election here in the United States, although the polls and the prediction markets said that Hillary Clinton was more likely to win, they weren't saying it was a 0% chance. And so a lot of people were saying, oh, the polls were wrong, or they were saying the predictions were wrong. But that's not necessarily true. Just because someone says something is 60% or 70% to happen, but it doesn't happen, does not mean they were wrong. So as he says, really, to evaluate the meteorologist's accuracy, we would have to look at her prediction of 70% rain. And let's say we could see 100 times where she said 70% rain. And if it rained 70 times, then we'd actually say, oh, she's quite accurate when it comes to her prediction because she's saying 70% and that happens 70% of the time. So if we look at just one situation or one day, it can be very misleading. But there's ways that we look at evaluations in these ways and don't realize that we're missing the point. And in general, we don't do very well with maybes. Things are very much more black and white. For example, if uh, our ancestors were in the savannah and they heard some rustling and they're wondering, is that a lion or not? Maybe doesn't mean a whole lot. And so we tend to go more of a yes or no makes more sense for things like survival. And probability is not something we really get very well. And I've talked about that in other books as well. So um, he talked about that aspect of it, but also something that I think is very important that we don't hold people accountable for their predictions. And especially in today's world where we have 24-hour news, and most of what we actually call news, if you watch CNN or Fox News or any of those kinds of channels, are people, quote-unquote, pundits or experts who come on and share their opinion about what's happened or happening, but also make predictions. And they just make very bold predictions and they say things, but there's no accountability or understanding of if they're right or we come back and check how accurate they were or before we even bring them on to ask them for their opinion about what's going to happen. Do we know how good they are at predicting things? Sometimes they'll give you one fact. So-and-so predicted the economic crash of 2008, and we don't know exactly what that means, how he or she predicted it, what did they say, but we take that to mean that this person is very good at predicting things and sees it before it happens, but really we don't know. But people come on and they share their opinion, and another uh, fact he mentioned is that we tend to think um, that people who are more confident know what they're talking about, but also what ends up happening is that people who are overly confident tend to be the ones that are on TV more because we tend to like to hear those kinds of things. If someone comes on and says, I think, well, this is possible, maybe this, maybe that, we don't really like that. But if someone comes on and says, the stock market is definitely going to go up this month and blah, 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 this is why and gives their reasons, whatever they might be, but says it with a lot of confidence, we like that. We like the certainty. And unfortunately, that certainty doesn't actually fit with reality a lot of the times because usually we can't predict things that clearly, but we like to hear that. And those people tend to be more likely to want to promote themselves as well, and they're more likely to end up on TV. And so we think, well, they're on TV, they must know what they're talking about, and they say it with such confidence, they must know what they're talking about. But really, most of the time, they don't know. And that's something I very much agree with. Also, you see this in the world of sports. I love watching sports, but I can get annoyed at times with watching the 24-hour sports coverage where people will make these bold predictions about things 
and say it with such confidence, but really we have no idea. But people just like the analysis and hearing what's going on, and so we, we take their predictions also, but there's no real way of evaluating what they're doing, or if someone gets a lot of things wrong, they don't kick them off the show usually, they just keep them on and keep moving forward. So um, it's something important to look at because we're constantly asking for predictions, or we're wanting predictions from people about what's going to happen in the world, and sports might be, of course, a lot less consequential, but there are real big issues in the world, um, like wars, things in the economic realm, a new policy for healthcare, for example, and we try to make predictions of what's going to be the effect, and it's very important to try to get it right, or as right as we can get it. And, and so, in the book, they also discuss tournaments of prediction that were held, uh, that were very serious in looking at different types of predictions. And another thing I should mention before I go forward is that a lot of predictions are very vague. If I tell you the stock market is going to go up soon, it might seem like a very clear prediction. But if you really look at it more closely, what does that mean? First of all, what does go up mean? If it went up 0.0001%, would you consider that it went up? I don't know. I don't really think so. That's probably not what you think I meant by that. Also, what does soon mean when I say it's going to go up soon? Because what people do is they make predictions like that, and then you come back to them six months later and say, hey, the stock market, not only did it not go up, it went down. And they go, no, no, just wait. That's the classic line. Just wait. I said it's going to go up. It hasn't gone up yet. This is the part where it goes down, and then later it's going to go up. And so I can, by making a very uh, vague prediction, I can make it impossible to prove myself wrong or for you to prove me wrong. And then later I can try to make it so that I was right. Oh, see, it went up. No, I, I predicted that. But really, my prediction was very vague. So similar to when I've talked about making goals and we talk about making them very specific and time measured, we want to do the same thing when it comes to predictions or ask for predictions that are that way. So if I say uh, the stock market is going to go up by at least 3% to 5% in the next two months, and I'm 80% confident about that, that's a very different prediction than the stock market's going to go up soon. But we might not actually ask for that second version that I just said of where, that was more specific most of the time. So in this tournament of predictions, they had people making predictions and putting time into it. And I won't get into all the details of the tournament, but they were looking at what makes people good predictors. And they came up with some factors that help because there were what they call, and that's where the title of the book comes from, super forecasters. These people who tend to be good over time at making predictions and being more accurate than other people. And more accurate even sometimes, and this was interesting, than people in the intelligence agency. And they were comparing people that were just sometimes laymen, people who were not in the intelligence agency, who didn't do this for a living, but they were asked to make forecasts and they ended up sometimes and very often beating people in the intelligence agency who sometimes even had access to information they didn't have access to, which was quite remarkable. But some things that people do when they're good at making these kinds of predictions is they tend to be cautious and humble. So again, this idea of the confident predictor knowing what's going on, these people, even though they would have confidence over time in how good they were, they still remained cautious and humble. They knew that nothing is certain. And that's the thing that bothers me when sometimes people make predictions that this is for sure going to happen, especially about things that are so complex, like a stock market or some war or something like that, um, is that how can they be so confident? And we like their confidence, but to me, actually, the confidence makes me less 
confident in what they're saying. Because if you know something is in some way unknowable to predict in that way, it shows that you don't really understand the situation. And so you can't make that type of prediction. So people who are these good forecasters are actually very good at constantly questioning themselves. They can have confidence, but they're not 100% confident. And so in that way, they're actively open-minded. They make their decisions, but they're still taking in new information. They don't want to just assume they know. He also says they have something called a dragonfly-eyed approach. And dragonflies have, I forgot, it's like 20,000 or 30,000 different type of receptors or eyes on their head, and they take those all together to get a very complete image of their surroundings. And he said that people that are good forecasters do this as well. They take lots of different perspectives. They don't just hone in on one way of thinking and then just think this is it. They listen to lots of different people, even people they disagree with, to try to get more information. Also, they're thoughtful updaters, meaning that if they get new information, they don't do what many of us do, which is that we like to say, you know what, I thought this, I don't want to say maybe I was wrong, so I want to stick to it. So if they get new information, they'll take it in. But also they won't take it in too much, meaning that they won't overreact to new information as some people might. And this is something we see a lot of times where people will uh, get new information and it'll totally change what they think when really it might make just a slight change. Also, two other factors he mentioned, which is interesting because it's two books I've talked about on this show, is having a growth mindset. Um, we've talked about that many times on the show where it's like instead of thinking that things are just fixed, that either you're good at something or you're not, in the growth mindset you think that I can get better at this with practice. So he found that the super forecaster saw it in this way as this challenge where they can get better. And the other one is Grit. And that was a book by Angela Duckworth that I recently talked about, that they were determined to keep at it however long it takes. They're willing to keep trying, keep looking at it, and have that perseverance to see if they can figure things out. <clears throat> but so what was interesting in this book was how these people who were ordinary people, quote-unquote, were able to make very good predictions about very important things, about how a, certain, a refugee crisis or um, what would happen in a certain election and they would make these very good predictions that was quite interesting and as he puts it we should be paying attention to this because we tend not to think much about predictions of what happens and he talks several times about the weapons of mass destruction fiasco of Iraq how we thought the, or the intelligence agency made it seem very clear that they knew there was weapons of mass destruction and that's what started the war in Iraq but really it turned out there was none and of course, again, if they said even there was a 90% chance, it doesn't mean it was definitely there, but they didn't even use mathematical language and they made it seem very clear that this was the case, that there was no doubt in their mind. And this actually even led to them changing the ways they make their predictions or how they express things. And he shares some interesting information about even uh, finding Osama bin Laden and how they weren't 100% sure when they went forward. And even there was disagreements within members of the intelligence agency of how confident they were, the percentages they would put that, in fact, this man that they were um, seeing there or that this tall man at that compound in Pakistan was Osama bin Laden. And they weren't 100% sure and they had differences in opinion. And actually that difference of opinion is not a bad thing. Uh, something he talks about in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, they made it seem like 
the people in charge did not like this disagreement, but actually disagreement is good. It shows that everyone is thinking independently and on their own. And if everyone has the exact same answer, it actually means likely there's groupthink or something else in play where people are just choosing to agree rather than to think on their own. But really, when we, people make predictions, they're going to have different predictions, and that's okay. And again, uh, using that dragon eye flight or dragonfly-eyed approach, you want to use different perspectives to actually get a better understanding of what is going on. So I really found this book quite fascinating, looking at predictions and how we can get better, and even yourself can get better, but also how you can actually pay more attention to the predictions you pay attention to, what people say, how much confidence you put in those things, to make sure you don't just get swindled by someone because they sound very confident, that actually sometimes their confidence is a sign that they don't know, and they're just trying to make you think and convince you that they know what's going on and especially when you watch the news you'll see a lot of this where people say things in ways but it's to get themselves really on tv more than anything than actually make a good prediction that's going to help people so that was super forecasting the art and science of prediction by philip tetlock and dan gardner and our book of the week for this week is when the scientific secrets of perfect timing by daniel h pink all right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk about something related to feelings, a topic that obviously I cover a lot on this show, but something I've noticed that people do when it comes to their feelings. So sometimes people will feel something or the feeling will come up or because of a situation, they'll have some kind of an emotional reaction to something. But then because they can't do anything about it or because they think it's better not to feel this way, they say, well, I shouldn't feel that way. I should even maybe like what's going on. So it's like something happens that hurts their feelings and it's, they get hurt, but they realize they can't do anything about it or they'd rather not be hurt by it. And so they say, no, I don't care or I'm, I should be okay or why don't I like this? Why do I have to dislike it? Uh, and this is where it's our feelings are important, of course, but what affects our feelings a lot is how we judge our feelings. So people will say, I don't want to be offended by that, which I can understand. We'd rather not feel sensitive to something or not be hurt by something, especially if it's something we can't control or especially sometimes it's something that makes us feel bad. Like, oh, why do I care what people think? Or why did I care that this girl did that and I envied it and I felt bad about that? Which I can understand, but we can't change that experience, especially not in the moment. Over time, things can change. You might look back and be like, oh, 10 years ago, something like that really did bother me, but now I don't feel much about it. People do change. But in the moment, we can't change that. We can't just say, well, I don't want to be hurt by that. It's just like right now, actually, uh, we're having some issues with the air conditioning here in the studio, and it's making me quite warm, but I can't change that. I'd like to feel a lot cooler, but I can't just tell myself, well, because I want to feel cool, let me pretend like I'm cool. It doesn't really work. I am a little bit warm and I can deal with that, but that's just the reality of it. So the same thing is true of our feelings. Yeah, you might have got offended by something you wish would not affect you, but we can't avoid that. And the analogy it made me think of is food and the feeling we have or the taste we have for food. It would be nice for the healthiest food to taste the best for you, but that's usually not how it goes. 
for most people. Over time, that can even change. But really, the likelihood that broccoli will taste as good to you as, let's say, ice cream probably is not going to happen. But you could tell yourself, well, because broccoli is good for me, shouldn't I just make it taste better? Shouldn't it taste better than me? And ice cream should taste bad to me? Ideally, that would be nice. But realistically, we can't do that. We can't change the way we just feel about something because of how we think about it after or if we think it's better or worse for us. We have to be realistic about it. Yes, broccoli doesn't taste that good. Maybe I can do certain things to make it more flavorful, but probably still will never taste as good as the ice cream that I like, but I can find a way to choose to have the broccoli over the ice cream, even if it tastes better. And so with our feelings, we have to do the same thing. Be realistic about what you're feeling. Don't judge the feeling after the fact. First, be in touch with it. And this gets in the way with people being in touch because they don't want to feel something. Even in therapy, you'll feel this resistance that you'll say, it seems like that made you sad. And because they don't want to be saddened by whatever it might be, they say, oh, no, no, I, did, I didn't actually care at all. And sometimes depending on the situation, how clear it seems, and depending on the relationship I have with the client and many factors, I might even still challenge that. Because, of course, as a therapist, you're trying to stay with your, your client and the person there and where they are at and what they're saying. And I can't tell someone what they feel or what they don't feel. But sometimes it could just seem so clear that you might question it again to check in. Like, you know, it just seems like you were feeling something. Sometimes they'll tell you a story and you can see the sadness on their face. But then when you ask them about it, they say, no, I was not sad or I don't feel anything about it. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that it's because they don't want to feel sad about that thing. They don't want to, for example, give that power, the, the person, the power to hurt them. I don't want to think that that person can hurt me. Or even I've heard a lot of times people say, I don't want to spend my time in therapy talking about that person. Because in a way, it's like giving them power that who the heck is she or who is he to take my time up in therapy that I'm worried about him or her. And first of all, when we deal with our pain, it's not about the other person. So always when people go through a breakup, they say, well, is it worth crying over him or crying over her? And that's not the issue at hand. The issue is if you're in pain. If someone were to punch you, you would be in pain and you'd put ice on it. You'd take care of it, not say, well, is it worth for me hurting by that person's fist or that guy? No, that doesn't matter about that part. It's about you healing your pain regardless of who caused it or how it was caused, but you taking care of yourself and what you're going through. So we want to come back to our own feelings of what we're going through rather than worrying about the other person, but we can't change what we feel in that moment. If you're hurt by something, you're hurt. And it's not about them, it's about you, understanding yourself. And even if that person hurts you, like, why am I hurt by them? I don't want to give them that power. More important than giving them that power is you understanding why you're feeling hurt. That information is going to help you going forward. Okay, yeah, I got hurt by that girl or that guy that treated me bad, actually. Why did I let them treat me that way? Let me pay attention to that. Your tears are not something you give to them. People might say, well, they're not worth your tears, so don't cry for them. Tears aren't something that come out of you and take something out of you and you then have to go give it to that person. Tears are an expression of your pain. And so you're staying with yourself in that moment and letting yourself feel whatever it is that you feel. So it's always good for us to look at our feelings and actually in general look at are there feelings that I judge one way or another. Some people never want to be angry because somehow they've learned or somewhere in their past they learned that anger is bad. 
causes, let's say, violence or aggression if they saw that in their home. Very often you'll see this where the person will put anger in their shadow, this part of themselves that they don't like or they don't want to exist, and they'll pretend like it doesn't exist. And so they'll pretend like they're never angry, and they'll never show that anger even though it's there. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I feel about the different feelings? Because, yes, we have our feelings, but we have these feelings and judgments about feelings. Some people will think, well, sadness is weak, especially to cry. Of course, this is more likely in men, but not just in men. So it's like, no, I'm never, I never want to be sad and cry. So rather than do that, they'll first of all hide their sadness. Maybe they'll deal with it on their own by using drugs or alcohol or something to numb it. They'll cry when they're on their own, but never share that with someone. And they're more likely to want to express that pain through anger towards the people that have hurt them or to other people rather than expressing the sadness. So we have to look at that. What feelings am I okay with? What am I not okay with? And generally speaking, people are very okay with the positive emotions, quote-unquote positive, such as happiness and excitement. Rarely do people say, I shouldn't feel happy. Um, sometimes people with very low self-esteem or who've been hurt or don't know if they deserve happiness might have that. But in general, people are very okay with that. They don't question their happiness. They say, I feel good, so I feel good. There's nothing bad there. But then when we feel bad, that's when this comes in. Wait, should I be sad about this? Should I let myself be hurt by this? Am I that kind of person to feel that weak or that sad right now? No, I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm not sad anymore. They pretend like they're not. And so people who hear me sometimes will think I like for people to be sad. I've even heard people tell me it seems like you want us all to cry, kind of in a joking way, but half serious. But it's not that I want people to cry or I want them to be sad. What I want is for people to be in touch with whatever it is they are feeling, to recognize that. So if you are sad, I want you to express that. And the same thing is true about hearing about it. So again, I don't want for my friends or loved ones or even my clients to be sad. I'm not wanting something to happen to make them sad. But if they are sad, I want to know it. Just like if you care about someone, if they're sick, you want them to tell you, you know, I'm not feeling good. I'm sick. I need to rest. I might need medicine. Maybe even might need you to take care of me. And then we want to take care of them. The same should be true of our feelings, emotional pain, just like it is with physical pain. If someone is not feeling good emotionally, you don't want them to feel bad, but you'd like to know. So you can be there for them, so you can understand them, and even it is a way of connecting. When we don't share our sad feelings, it's impossible for us to really connect deeply with one another when we think we have to hide that from each other. And so that's another judgment that we have, that a lot of these negative feelings are things we should never share with one another. We should just always be pleasant and polite and nice. And I use that word nice because it's usually a niceness. It's like feeling phony good. I'm just going to be good and nice and easy and never make you upset and never make you hurt. I'm being so nice. So we think that nice is good. But as I've mentioned before, nice is actually sometimes the worst thing we can do. And just staying nice never allows us to get close to one another. If you are just pretending to be good, pretending to be happy, pretending not to be upset with each other, it doesn't actually lead to good relationships. It leads to a lack of conflict, but lack of conflict is not the basis of a good, strong relationship. That's not how we should measure our relationships. And people do that sometimes. You'll say, um, how's it going with this person? Or how is it going with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend? Like, you know, we never fight. And they take that as the indication of strength of their relationship. And to me, that's not necessarily even a good sign sometimes it's actually a very bad sign if you never fight but i don't take that as an indication of something good 
of course, yes, if you say we never have ugly arguments where we disrespect each other or anyone gets aggressive or violent, that's good. You can't have that negative in there in a good relationship. But if you don't have the positive and good type of conflict, that's also a problem. So don't think that a good sign of a healthy marriage or healthy relationship is that you don't fight. I hear that all the time from couples who have in a way fallen out of love and are no longer connected and have kids and they say, oh, you know, the kids are okay because we don't fight in front of them. And they think that's the only way of having a bad marriage is fighting. Well, that's good that you don't fight, but if it's also a very cold marriage, the kids are going to feel that too. That coldness is going to affect the home. So don't just look at that lack of something as a, a benefit, as something good. And so these negatives we think of as life, and you can't see me, but I use a lot of air quotes when I say negative, negative feelings of sadness, negative feelings of anger that we think of as so bad. If we don't include those in our own lives and if we don't include them in our relationships, we can never be that close to one another. So we have to try to shift that way that we look at these feelings that sad is bad, that anger is bad, that I should keep that from the other person because they won't like it. It's not going to make them feel good. So why should I share that with them? It's not that you're sharing it with them because in the moment it's going to make them feel good for you to be sad or that you're angry with them, but that we know that the only way we can be close is that we're genuine and open with one another, that I share with you how I actually feel. I don't just hold things in just to make you in that moment feel good. It's recognizing that sometimes growth involves discomfort. If you want your relationship to grow, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations. You have to share uncomfortable emotions. You have to tell your partner things that they might not want to hear in that moment, but that will be important for the growth of your relationship, and we can't hold that back. So when it comes to our feelings, it would be nice that if we could just feel what we wanted to feel, just like it would be nice if the healthiest foods tasted the best to us, but we can't do that. We can't change how we feel in a given moment. We can't just make something feel good, or we can't make ourselves not feel something about something. We have to recognize that things are going to affect us, and that's part of being a human. And it's important to evaluate how we look at our feelings. What do I think are okay things to feel? What do I think are not okay things to feel? Or is there times where I think, well, I shouldn't be sad right now because that shouldn't have affected me, but other times I can be. And we try to justify our feelings. First, we want to be in touch with the what, what's there, and then we can look at the why and try to understand it better. But first, we have to access the feeling itself. And the less interference we create by judging our feelings, the easier it can be to actually access those feelings. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I talked a bit about uh, our negative feelings or what we consider negative feelings like anger and, and sadness and then talked a bit about relationships as well and how we tend to at times think that a lack of conflict is a sign of a good relationship when in fact that's not the case. Healthy conflict and people might even hear that as an oxymoron, healthy conflict because we have such a negative association to that word conflict. Conflict means bad. Conflict means anger. Conflict even for a lot of people means the end of a relationship. I've even talked to a friend recently that was saying every time I brought up issues, 
something that was going on or something I was unhappy with in a relationship, the relationship ended. So it's in some way I've learned to hold things in. But that's not going to work. Holding things in is not a long-term strategy, an impossible long-term strategy for making a relationship work. And actually, I told that friend this, and I'll, I'll say it again, if you feel like every time you bring up issues with someone, things that you're not happy with in a relationship, of course, yes, you have to look at how you're doing it. There could be something there. But more than likely what I'm hearing when someone says that is that the people they're in relations with either are not in it for the right reasons or they can't handle the kind of conversations it takes to be in a relationship. If you're going to tell your partner, I'm unhappy about something in the relationship and that ends in a breakup, that means they weren't the right person for you. Either it wasn't a match or they're not the kind of person that's going to put the time in and the hard work to make a relationship work. So yes, a breakup can always be painful, but it probably means it wasn't the right relationship or the right partner and we can move on. But something else that can be important in a relationship in a way switching gears is a lot of times we'll say that your partner can serve as a mirror for you. And oftentimes this is the case, that when you're in a relationship, you get to see yourself a lot more. And a relationship itself can be a mirror. And just like taking a closer look in the mirror, we don't always like everything that we see. And that's what most people experience in a relationship. Uh, people might feel like I'm a very, uh, sometimes I don't like this word rational because I think it's hard to define it, but let's just use it here. I'm a very rational, calm person. And then I enter a into a relationship and they're like, who the heck is this person who's having these extreme feelings, reacting in this way, saying these things? And it can be really scary almost to us that we see this side of us. And it's not that this person is bringing out a side of us that didn't exist. That was always there. And very often it's our unresolved conflicts, especially from childhood, that comes out. And we see this in romantic relationships. A lot of ways we become like kids with each other, right? When people... Um, get very close and we start to even talk to each other sometimes like kids we call each other baby and you say baby baby and they say things in very childish ways sometimes to each other some people hate those things some people really like them but it's a very common thing that we experience but we when we enter a romantic relationship in some ways we're entering this complicated multifaceted relationship but one aspect of is is this feeling of a child and the caregiver and it should go both ways and only be some of the time, but you're going to have some aspects of that, that you're going to feel that way, and it's going to bring out childlike parts of you, some of it even good. The child is the part that plays and is spontaneous and connects in a way that is actually very important, but of course, sometimes you'll feel like just needy in a way. You know, you're like, oh, I don't want you to go to work today, and the person might get mad and say, well, you know I have to go to work, and it's not really the person is saying, I'm mad at you for going to work, but... There's this childlike feeling of just wanting to have you more. And they say, well, I just wish you didn't have to go to work right now and you can stay home or stay with me. Or we've been together two days and you have to leave, I know, but I don't want to say bye to you. And we can understand that. But when we're in a relationship, it's a good time for us to get a better look at ourselves and pay attention to those things. And again, when we look in the mirror, we don't always like everything that we see. Just like and the closer you look, the more you might see that you don't like but hopefully you can love and accept everything that you see. And same thing with what comes up in the mirror that is the relationship and your partner, you can have that. And our partners can also help us mirror certain things, or we might see things in them that we might not be able to see in ourselves. Very often people might have a painful childhood and they have a hard time accessing some of the feelings related to that. But then if their partner starts telling them about their own painful childhood, all of a sudden they'll feel a deep connection with that. 
and they might not even realize that it's because they're connecting to their own pain as well. So our partner can serve as a great way to get to know ourselves better, to actually connect even deeper with ourselves in that way as a mirror. Also, I'm saying sometimes we'll connect to that pain. Another thing we have to really pay close attention to is that sometimes you'll see something in your partner and you'll feel a really negative reaction to it. Like almost like I hate that about him or I hate that about her. And it might just seem like you don't like this characteristic. But if you look a little bit closer, you'll likely realize and often you'll see that it's something you have in yourself that you don't like, that you've maybe tried to disown or put away that now you're seeing in them. So you, for example, uh, I mentioned the, the emotion of anger before, have put your anger away. And when your partner, even in a healthy way, might express their anger, you might be like, oh, that's so like bad. Why does he let himself get that way? Or why does she get that way? And it might actually not be that you hate that about them. It could be it's something that you've hated about yourself, something that you've disliked in yourself. And this is why we often say, notice what people say about other people. A lot of times it reflects things about themselves. So if they say, oh, people are so cheap, or people gossip so much, or people lie so much. Why do people lie so much? Very often it's because they themselves lie and don't like that about themselves, and they look for it and they project it on to other people. So there's many ways that our partner can serve as a mirror. Also, someone else can give us perspective on ourselves that we ourselves don't see. We're living our own lives and we're going through our days and doing the same things, but someone else can give us a fresh perspective and also see our behavior. They might say, you know, I've realized you just, you're always doubting yourself about these things. And I know you're going to do great, but every time you go into some big presentation or some big project, you have so much self-doubt and it always surprises me because I'm so confident in you and I don't see any reason for you to doubt yourself. So there's lots of ways that our partner then can also, hopefully in a loving, non-judgmental way, make us aware of things that we might not see in ourself. And in that way, the analogy I also like, we talk about the mirror, and very often we feel that, that our partner can serve as a mirror, but also our partner can serve as a window. Of course, there's a window that they have that we look deeper into themselves, but also a partner can help us by creating a window to look deeper within our own self, not just into our partner, but who we are by letting us get deeper. And they can do that in several ways. Some of them involve what I was just talking about by reflecting certain things, but also sharing things that we might not see. But going back to that idea that when we're in a romantic relationship, it brings up some of our feelings and some of that dynamic of being a child. If they can give us that feeling of being loved and accepted, it can make it more comfortable for us to go even deeper within ourselves and see what is there. If I feel safe, emotionally with my partner that they're going to love me and they make me feel good about who I am it can be a lot more comfortable for me to explore who I am even on a deeper level deeper deeper level who else I am or what other aspects of myself are there that I have not allowed myself to see so in that way we should look for a partner who is a good mirror helps us see ourselves a bit but also allows us to go even deeper into who we are and another comment about how we tend to see things in our partner and might have reactions to it. As always, when we feel a really strong reaction to something, we want to take a little deeper look at why that might be. Sometimes we just really are having a reaction. If something really bad happens, some horrific accident happens and we get very sad, there's no need to look for a deeper analysis. It could just be very sad. But sometimes we'll see something in our partner and have a very strong reaction, for example. Like they have some expression of an emotion we feel something or they start acting a certain way and we feel like we're overreacting 
Anytime you can be in touch with that feeling of overreaction, we can almost always be assured that it's coming from our childhood in some way, something unresolved within ourselves. And very often what we actually will find is in this interesting dynamic, we'll see something in them that actually we wish we had ourselves that initially we like, but later we hate. So let me give you an example. You have um, a guy who is very structured and rigid, even has, let's say, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So everything has to be very rigid and things are uh, have to be a certain way and they're not very spontaneous and everything is very predictable. And they meet a girl who is very um, free-spirited and, and open and things aren't as planned and spontaneous. And initially the guy is just so excited by this and it feels so fun. And it's, of course, it's different from who he is, but also it's he's getting in touch with a part of himself that he has a hard time expressing. Within him, there is this part that wants to be spontaneous and fun-loving and free and all of that. But because of the anxiety or whatever else it might be, he has a hard time expressing that. So now with this new potential partner and new partner, he gets to be in touch with that and it feels fun. And so if you ask him early on in the relationship, he might say, I love how free-spirited she is and how spontaneous she is, and she makes everything so fun and exciting. But then interestingly enough, six months later, he might say, I hate how free-spirited she is and how nothing is set in stone and she's just too, uh, in, too flexible. There's nothing, I can never predict, there's no consistency in who she is. So very often the things that attract us to someone later on becomes the things that we dislike about them. So we like that they're so spontaneous and fun and free, but then later on, we dislike how inconsistent they are. The other side of it comes out. And so some of this is because it's part of ourself that we've disowned and we dislike, and don't want to have, but also it's because lots of characteristics, they're not just black and white, good and bad. They're come with some good and some bad or some ways they can be good and then in some ways they can be bad. Or in certain situations they're good and certain situations they're bad. So when it comes to things like free-spiritedness, it does feel good to have a partner who can be free-spirited. But if you're someone who really values things being consistent, this will potentially drive you crazy over time because you want things to be consistent and they're not. And you won't feel good about that. So pay attention to this because you see it a lot in therapy that people will say, some of the things that attracted me to my partner are now the things I have the hardest time dealing with, are now the things that actually anger me the most or make me the most frustrated. And it could be this complex interplay of things within ourselves that we've disowned and also the fact that most characteristics have good and bad sides to them that leads to this. So upon a closer examination, as much as the person is complaining about their partner, why are they this way, why do they do these things, they'll realize they might have picked their partner for some of these same characteristics because earlier on it made them very excited but now it actually is very bothersome to them and so that gives them usually a sense of responsibility of okay it's not just like my partner has become this way I always knew he or she was this way and maybe even I picked them and chose to be with them because of those characteristics so it's good for us to have this in mind that it's not just about them being bad and they need to change but there's something within us that wanted to be with someone like them and actually if we get more in touch with that part of ourselves that is that way it's likely we'll become less angry or hurt by them being that way as well so we can see that relationships can be so complex and they can allow us to have a mirror to look at ourselves but also a window to look deeper into ourselves and we should choose a partner who gives us that 
who gives us that comfort to be okay with who we are, to go a little bit deeper, to see who we are on a deeper level, and to share that with each other. And this is why, in my understanding of love, a lot of people think love has to get boring, or love has to get, um, or we have to fall out of love, or you can't stay in love for a long period of time. I don't agree with that, because I think we are always changing. There is always more of us to see. And also actually in a healthy relationship, more of who we are can come out. And there's more to than love because we see more aspects of who the person is as their personality and all it, that it can be is showing. So we don't have to get bored of each other because people are constantly changing and there's always more to be seen in that individual. But we have to create a relationship that allows for that that creates the space for both people to be comfortable showing different sides and getting in touch with parts of themselves that they didn't know and that will still feel loved by our partner, that they won't feel like we have to hide something or be something that they want us to be. So again, choose a partner that is going to be a mirror to allow you to see yourself better, but also a window to look deeper into yourself to see who you are on a level and in ways that you didn't even know existed. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Thanks for calling. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I don't know where to start. I'm an uh, Iranian girl. Um, pretty much grew up in Iran until I was 21 years old. And then um, I came to U.S., um, got my Ph.D. in computer science, and I work at a Fortune 500 company now, and um I'm 36 years old, and I'm married to an American guy here. He's 46 years old. He's an oral surgeon, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm <laughs> I'm debating divorce. And the reason I say I'm debating is I made a decision. You know, I was like, okay, this is not for me. This is very stressful. And um, since I did that, he's been begging me to come back, and he's a startup singer behavioral therapist I'm like are people gonna really change that much and um, should I hang on he's begging me to give him another chance okay um, well regarding your qu- your question about change or that thought about change do people change I think absolutely they do or else I wouldn't do what I do for my work but is change very difficult yes and do people a lot of times not change yes so I understand your skepticism it'll be good for us to understand what's going on that makes you want to leave. So what's what's happened that got you to this point? Even you described the marriage as stressful, which of course we don't want. Our marriage will have stress in it, but overall we don't want to think of it as stressful. So what's uh, what's going on? What makes you want to get a divorce? Yeah, so um, I actually feel like I heard this section of your previous um, session, and I feel like a lot of it applies to our relationship. I'm a very uh, logical calm person and um, I'm kind of optimist by nature he's a very um, strong minded aggressive type of person he can get um, 
he can be very sweet and nice, and also then he can change and get angry or upset at something um, very basic. Let's we'll say he starts cooking or uh, uh, grilling a steak, and he gets it off, or uh, and it's not well done, and then <laughs> so he gets he gets really upset at little things that I'm like it's not worth getting upset at, and that stresses me out. Um, I'm okay having discussions or arguments, you know, things that happen in marriage, and you have to talk through them. But I just don't understand why he gets upset so easily at little things. Okay, and but that just stresses me sure. out. Sure. Does he get upset at you? No. No? He gets upset at a piece of a stick, which he, like, made himself, as okay. an example. A very basic example. Okay, but... Okay. But so... It's kind of... I'm, I'm trying to get... I can see how that can be frustrating and my guess is there's more to it than that because if you're saying you want to get divorced over him getting frustrated by his steak or different things i'm not <laughs> sure I, I would assume there's more to it is it exactly. ways that he he reacts to you or there's there ways that because of what he does you can't get close to him um it's ways that he reacts to things in general so i always tell him like Life is not a red carpet, right? Um, you don't, you know, things are going to happen. Things are not going to be perfect. There is, by getting upset about them, you're not going to improve the situation. You actually make it worse. And he can be actually up and down. He can be very reasonable in, when, in certain situations. And then all of a sudden he changes and he gets in this anger mode um, where it's, um, he's, he gets it gets very hard for me to deal with him in that situation because I don't necessarily like um, it, I can't say I don't like complex it's okay. who, who likes complex but um, it just doesn't match how I would react to things In um, well it doesn't have to match how you would react you guys are not going to be the same but you're talking about the anger so does the anger come towards you does he get angry with you does he get aggressive has he been is it gone worse than that i'm trying to get what what do you yeah, he just gets angry like by like he yells at something he yells or he like would throw something uh not at me uh it's never been at me and he and i always tell him you know why did he do that and he says i'm not upset at you I'm upset at this situation. And I've asked him, maybe you could control your anger, maybe. And that's where he's actually going to see a behavioral therapist. Um, but again, I'm not sure. It's okay. a constant thing. Um, my biggest problem is, you know, he can be very sweet and nice. I never know what to expect. Like, all of a sudden, he becomes different. I'm like, what happened to you? Okay. So, yeah, and you said something about a red carpet, so it seems like he likes things to be his way. Does that does that play out with you if you want something or if you guys are trying to figure out something to do that you feel like he's unreasonable or he always wants it his way, not your way? That's actually very accurate. He um, ends up getting what he wants. Okay. Um, and he says that 
in joke and I'm using quotes, air quotes. It's like, oh, she's the boss and she decides what we do. But really, in the background of things, he affects he affects my decisions as well because I'm a very flexible person. I'm like, okay, whatever, we can do this, what is that? Well, that might be the problem. You might be being flexible, but you're actually not happy with it. Yes. So I know you're saying conflict, yeah, who loves conflict or really wants it, but you might be avoiding conflict too much, and it could be from this place if you want to be this logical, calm person that doesn't care about things, but I think you care a lot more than you realize, or you want, or you care more than you want to care. I think you're actually on the point. In, um, I had a discussion with him, and I told him I feel like our personalities don't match very well. Mm-hmm. I know this relationship is great for you, and it actually was a big surprise to him. Like He didn't think we have any issues or problems, even though I was mentioning these to him. So he was very surprised about the whole thing. Yeah. And um, I feel like, you know, I grew up in Iran, that whole culture of being nice and polite and accommodating, and he's an American and tries to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And, and I know I have to work on myself to just become better in getting what I want as well. And, you know, I'm actually a leader. I'm not a follower necessarily personality, but he's like way more, I don't know. Type A, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So I've become the per- a different person than I really want to be. Yeah. Well, it seems like you've picked the path of least resistance when it comes to him, at least in the short run, um, but you couldn't take it anymore. And now you're not okay with it. So you said you have to work on things, and the thing you have to work on is to tell him what do you feel? And the thing is, what's likely to happen is you guys are going to have a lot more conflict. If you guys even decide to stay together, it seems like you're still trying or you're debating, as you said, but that's going to be a challenge. And he might not actually like that. And maybe that will lead to things not working out, or it could lead to you guys having a much better relationship with more conflict, but hopefully you guys deal with it in good ways. But he doesn't know what's going on or how he's bothering you because one, it does seem like he's more in his own mind than someone else's and he sees things from his own perspective but also because you're not sharing it with him so he doesn't know you're as upset and um as much as we can blame him just in you describing yourself as logical and calm as the first two things you told me i think you value that or you want to be this person that doesn't get affected by things or who doesn't care about things that you maybe tell yourself in the moment well that's not a big deal or this doesn't matter or why do i care but i think again you do care more than you realize and that resentment has been building in you and now it's gone to this point where you're just like i want to get a divorce while he's like, wait, what? You're not even happy? I didn't even know you weren't happy. <laughs> so it seems like he was so surprised by this. Um, and so they're obviously both of you are contributing to what's going on, but especially since I'm talking to you, I want you to realize your contribution and also realize that the only way out of it is that you're going to have to try to be more real and then see what happens. Maybe he won't be able to handle you having an opinion about everything you have an opinion about or for you wanting things, or for you expressing when you're not happy. And then it might not work, um, but at least I'd hope you give it that shot and allow yourself to see if you can get what you actually want. Yeah, I think you're actually you're right on the spot. And uh, a couple of things quick. Um, I do tell him, I'm like, I am not okay with this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, honey, you're drinking too much. I'm not okay with this. Okay? 
it's or you know there's no reason to yell at nothing it makes me stress out so i have talked to him but he never right. took me seriously until the day i actually ran to the place left and said i'm out of here well that's and that's not a good sign obviously so yeah i i did i made some assumptions that you weren't telling him and i'm glad you are telling him at times and a lot of times it just seems like it's hard for him to take that in and that's just the sense i got there was a feeling of not to diagnose him as having narcissistic personality disorder but a certain narcissism of seeing things from his side only and not seeing your side or not seeing that you could be affected by his anger if he's yelling yeah no one likes to be around that and so when i say conflict i don't mean that yelling and and being throwing things is not what i consider as healthy conflict that's not good and even if it's about something else still to be around someone yelling and throwing things is going to make you stressed and it's going to make your night not pleasant so um but that it seems like he doesn't take that into account or seem to care much or take it seriously and that's why i think you got to the point where you're like i have to do something more extreme and i'm not saying you did this as a manipulation but really it was the only way to communicate to him how unhappy you were was to show him by making a strong move and then he was like oh wait wait something's wrong and he's trying to fix it and I do think you should give him a chance if he's trying, but sometimes there can be a concern that a person only makes the effort to avoid the person from leaving, and then once they have them back, they can go back. And so I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. We don't know aware of that you'll see this a lot in, in these types of scenarios where the person makes the change not because they think it's right or really they want to do it, but just to avoid losing something and even feeling like they're losing. So that that is what you're saying but i think it's important for you you said he's going to therapy but for you to go to your own therapy to get in touch with what's what's happening with you and even just getting more in touch with yourself because it, it seems that at times you can put things away so you have to get in touch with why am i avoiding conflict so much and maybe it's because you learned he is he's almost not impossible but very difficult to have conflict with because it's going to get explosive in your own, anyone like him? Think of anyone who's similar to him? Um, not really. My dad was kind of very much like me. My mom is a super cool, like, chill person. Um, did you have a little bit of conflict when we were, like, about, you know, 12, 11 years old? It was mainly around their families and, you know. So I do remember that, and I have wondered if that that's what has made me um, be a little, like, Mm-hmm. Uh, uncomfortable with conflict. Yeah. So, what were their conflicts like when they would fight? Um, they they would actually not talk to each other. Mm. Okay. So mm-hmm. they didn't really fight. They would not talk to each other. Enough. So they would have an argument and then they would not talk yeah, to each other. For... Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my dad wouldn't talk to my mom for a week. Yeah. So it's possible that something. I mean, again, most people don't like conflict, but um, and this is why I always tell parents it's so important so many things you model for your kids but a big one is how you handle conflict and one thing most people do unfortunately is they avoid conflict because they think it's so bad and then that teaches their kids that it's this really horrible thing to be avoided at any costs and so maybe at some level you've internalized some of that that you don't want to to have the conflict or bring it up and even in this case now that you're bringing it up it feels like you just feel like the only way is to end the relationship so i i would Give him some time, but I think it's very important for you to get a better handle of yourself and what you've uh, contributed to what's going on. And you might realize I don't want this at all, or you might realize I've done this and maybe I can be different too and try to create a better marriage with him. It's interesting. Sometimes we think 
um, you know, we're in a relationship and we're not happy and we think I need to have a relationship with a different person, but sometimes we can have a different relationship with the same person. And so since you're already married to him, I think it's worth giving it a shot to see if you can do that. Okay. I think I think that's very reasonable. Thank you very much sure. for your advice. My pleasure. Good I luck. I appreciate your time. Nice talking to you. Take care. Thanks. You Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Going to our next commercial break. Listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamro you're on the air hi yes hi thanks for calling thank you for taking my call my pleasure um, so, <laughs> yes i've um spoken with your father for a couple times uh but i something came up and i was just listening to your um conversation with the previous caller about conflict resolution mm-hmm. so um that's why i'm calling okay I don't know if you want to want me to like give a little bit of background, how old I am, and I'm sure so that'll be good. Good place to start. Go ahead. Sure, um, I'm 29, and um, I'm in a relationship for over a year um, with uh, my boyfriend. For he's 30, um, so I was married before. Um, I had a traumatic uh, experience, um, and then I got the divorce about five, six years ago. Um, so now everything is going great. Um, we pretty much agree on everything. Nothing's, um, causing any problems. The only thing is, um, when a conflict comes up, even the smallest thing, um, and also, um, maybe this is important, I'm the uh, first child, he's the last child Mm -hmm. of three, I'm the oldest of three. Um, and we're uh, both of us have like siblings two two years apart. Um, so um, it's so hard for me to like it's so easy for him to apologize if like a conflict comes up, but it's so difficult for me to apologize and actually like in heart I know I, I made a mistake or like and I get a little aggressive and like I become someone else and like uh, I can't. As if, like, all my love goes away, and I see him, like, as almost as an enemy. Hmm. Um, and I, I get so angry, and, like, my language and body language and everything becomes, like, um, very aggressive. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. I don't know what's going on. So you're saying when you get angry or when there's conflict, you feel like you become a different, different person? Yes. Okay, and then also... After the fact, it's hard for you to say sorry. Well, so we go through this long process. Like, we talk about, like, the smallest thing for hours and hours and hours. I, like, I see that I he points it out. I don't want to admit, but I know in my heart that I'm, like, reaching out for every possible thing to, like, um, to go around the issue and, like, not, not admit that I, I'm at wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at the end, eventually, I come to the realization and, like, I apologize and I, I'm like, okay, I, I made a mistake. But it takes so long and it's so energy-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know, how, how would you recommend, like, I, like, cut this process short? Yeah. Well, there's, you know, 
there could be techniques that we can talk about, but also what's important to look at is it seems like being wrong or making a mistake is such a costly thing for you that you, you mm -hmm. put so much emphasis on avoiding that. And I'm sure there's some perfectionism there. And also we can look at if there was punishment in your family, how you were punished for making mistakes. But some something about just being wrong, even in a moment, is unbearable for you. And it's as if it makes you bad or worthless or something that you try to avoid it at any cost, even though you can see it and feel it, but you just can't accept it. So you fight. You're fighting with him, but you're also fighting with yourself of just like, I can't acknowledge that I made a mistake. I can't. That can't be the truth. So I have to somehow blame him or, or, or find a way out of it. It seems like this intolerable space for you. And so that's what could be worth looking at. Of course, like I was saying about techniques, things like you guys should take a break and even you can tell him the problem is if it's ending in a place where you feel like you're wrong you won't let it end because you want to get to a place where you're not wrong um but if you can take a little break and calm down that can help but those things i talked about and, and let me also make another comment this also points to how most of the time when people have conversations or arguments in any relationship but especially partners it feels like it's you against the other person and that's a bad starting point. It has to be us together. We're trying to resolve a conflict together. And of course, we're going to feel things and take it personally. But as much as possible, we want to make it about winning together, not me winning against you, which can be very hard to do. But the way you're describing it, it's very you against him in your mind. And it becomes adversarial and you want to win at any cost against him, which means you might have to destroy him um, or you feel like you get destroyed. And that's always going to be a bad starting point or mindset to have but coming back to this uh, notion of making mistakes or punishment for mistakes what comes up for you when i when i mention things like that um well i had a terrible terrible childhood mm -hmm. um my mother left us when i was eight i think second grade mm. um and i had two little sisters to look after and when she came back, she, um, like, our, for every little thing, um, she would physically and verbally abuse us and, mm. like, um, punish us. Um, and very, yeah, it, it, there, when you said punishment, <laughs> mm. there, there has been a lot, a yeah. lot of fear and trauma and, um, associated with it, too. Yeah. How long was she gone? You said she left when you were eight. Yes, she left, I believe, I don't recall, but it was a long time for me as a kid. Mm. But I think it was like maybe about a year. Okay. And then, Strangely uh, enough, her was, not being there might have been better than her being there, but both both ways was bad. Her leaving is going to be hurtful for a kid to feel that the mom leaves, but then her coming back and the way you're describing how she treated you, that wasn't good either. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a lose-lose for you no matter what. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, it can make sense that, of course, with her making a mistake, you couldn't make a mistake around her. And I'm sure mistake even, uh, what does that mean? The way parents can usually abuse their kids for the slightest thing, or it's not even a mistake, or they're just having a bad day, it can be a mistake. So that obviously left you little room to feel like you could comfortably do something wrong, make a mistake, or be told you were wrong. And so although it seems like your mom is not the one punishing you anymore we tend to unfortunately internalize this reaction of our parents into ourselves so now it's still intolerable for you to make a mistake and we can get that it's so scary 
because it's not just like, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I could have done that better or I got that wrong. It's I got a mistake. I'm going to get beaten or verbally abused. So yeah. that's obviously not a comfortable. That's why it makes sense that even when I was saying it's an intolerable space for you, we understand that because how can you tolerate or be okay with being physically or emotionally abused? So you're going to avoid that at any cost. And really, it does the way you described it, I even had this image or the, the phrase that came to my mind. It's like you're fighting for your life. And now it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you see the, the, what's happening, but you're like, I'm going to fight this no matter what, even though I see that I'm wrong. Because being wrong comes with all this punishment and, and this horrible uh, experience, I can't acknowledge that. And this can change. It will take some time, um, but it will take the long process of healing some of that pain from the past to recognize mm-hmm. that you were not hit or hurt in these ways because of you being bad or you did something bad. In no way did you deserve any of it. Um, and slowly change that mindset that, Making mistakes not only is okay, it's inevitable, it's part of life, it's part of being human, it doesn't make you unlovable, and it definitely doesn't mean you deserve any of those kinds of treatments that you were getting from your mother, um, and, and slowly change that and make it a more tolerable space. People, no one likes to be wrong or feel like they were wrong or made a mistake, but we want to make it more tolerable. And right now for you, it seems like it's not tolerable at all. And then unfortunately, my guess is after you go through all this, you might even beat yourself up for how you acted during the fight, which also just creates this, you know, a bigger cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like when, when we're in an argument, like I literally have this fight or flight, like I get so, Mm -hmm. even like my physiology changes. Sure. Absolutely. I feel like I'm under attack or something. Yeah, this is, you know, that book, The Body Keeps the Score that I talked about just over, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. Um, And it was talking about trauma and how the body keeps the score of the trauma. I'm sure when you get into that space, you go back to being that little girl. And that little girl who was fighting for her life or trying to survive is going to come out. And and when you're at that physiological level or that physiological response, it's, um, I don't want to say impossible, but it becomes very difficult for you to respond in a calm way or to even be uh, using your frontal lobe and the parts of your brain that could plan and prepare and be more if you want to call it logical the emotions are going to be running the show you get hijacked in a way and so you're it's gonna be very difficult for you to stop that and that's why even you can talk to your boyfriend about this um, about how you can respond and I don't know how much you've told him about your past and where it might be coming from and first of all just so he understands that but that also you're going to need his help and that we need to stop the arguments when they get to a certain point, he probably can see it in you too, that you just change and that it's not going to get anywhere better. It can't get better at that point. Without calming down, there's no way to make progress. So you'll have to take that break knowing that even if it'll be hard and you're going to want to solve it or you're going to want to prove that you're not wrong or whatever it might be, that you'll also have to accept taking those breaks in those moments because you're not going to be able to handle getting to a better place at that time that's very true um like last night we had an argument and i was getting very frustrated um and i just took like a 15 minute time out and when i came back i realized why am i even fighting hmm. he's right like you know what i mean um 
do you have time? I have another question. Absolutely. That has been on my mind. Sure, absolutely. Um, Before you get to that, though, even in how you, you said, I'm, and I'm glad that 15-minute break helped, and it seems like it did, and it really helps for anyone. All of us physiologically change in an argument. It's really mm-hmm. a lot of times a matter of degree and the way it's going to affect us. Um, but I also hope that you can approach yourself with more compassion. And maybe you felt it, but the way you said, why am I even angry about this? Um, maybe it can be in a, oh, yeah, why am I angry? I'm okay. Sometimes it can come off in a judgmental way as well. And so what's going to have to happen for you is the compassion you deserved and needed from your mom that you didn't get. You're going to have to slowly give to yourself more and more. And that could be challenging. Hopefully your boyfriend gives it to you too. But especially from yourself, in a way, you have to give yourself that mothering you didn't get that when you react in this way, when you tell me about it, I can understand it. And I can have compassion for you that, gosh, it must be so hard. And we can get that it's that little eight-year-old fighting for her life or that little girl you who's trying to survive. And of course, if I thought that if I was wrong, I was going to get a beating even now. If I said two plus two is five, I would try to find a way to make it right and do everything I can just to prove maybe I can be right in some way so that I don't get that beating. So we can understand with some compassion where you're coming from. And I hope you can have that for yourself. Doesn't mean you don't try to change the behavior. Doesn't mean it's not up to you now to make things different. But I hope you can have that compassion for yourself as well. Okay. So do you think uh, this may have been coming from you? I mean, you did say that it's coming from my experience in the past. And do you also think that it's maybe not lack of, but not enough compassion for myself as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, like I said, we internalized that that voice and that reaction we got from our parents and the way what you received obviously was far from love and compassion. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times it's going to be hard for someone to give themselves that. At least they'll carry some of that with them and they might not even realize that they're hard on themselves or they judge themselves because it's so automatic. It's, a, it's something that you don't think. And you also think I deserve it. That's another thing is that People think, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I'm being hard on myself, but I deserve it. Just like sometimes kids will tell me, or adults will tell me, and it breaks my heart. They say, yeah, you know, my dad used to beat me or my mom used to beat me, but I was a really bad kid. And it always breaks my heart because you can hear in that this, um, this idea that I deserve to get beaten by my parent. I deserve to get abused, which no child deserves. But we can see how they've already created this narrative where somehow me getting abused was because I was bad, not because my parent was bad or treated me bad. I was the bad part. And so, unfortunately, um, we tend to create that narrative rather than seeing that our parent was sick or not okay or dealing with us not okay. It somehow, somehow we blame ourselves. So that's something I just want you to look at. And if you haven't gone, I hope you already have gone to your own therapy. But what you're talking about is some pretty deep trauma, even the abandonment of her leaving at eight years of age. Uh, must have been horrible and i'm sure if she left there must have been a lot of chaos already going on uh and then her coming back and if she was abusive before but also after there's a lot you have to deal with and that's going to be something you carry with you everywhere you go and especially it's going to get triggered in your romantic relationship and then especially even more in, in the face of conflict right yeah now another thing i agree with you 100 percent um uh another thing is that I've told my my boyfriend about my past, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know. I hear some people believe that you shouldn't be sharing your past uh, with your significant other. Some people say you should do it. Now, he knows a little bit about 
my childhood and my dynamic with my family mm-hmm. and and it and when it comes up in um in conversations like when we're in conflict and it comes up and he mentions it 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 just it upsets me so much mm-hmm. like i know that i've shared it with him it makes me think that he's using that almost against me yeah that's not that, that I, I i'm sure that doesn't feel okay and that's not how we want it to be, obviously, we're doing it to inform them so they understand us better, but not to give them ammunition to hurt us or to use it in their advantage. So it depends on, to me, what he's saying and how he's using it. Um, if he's saying, okay, look, you're getting really upset, and I know you get upset in fights because of blah, 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 that's a more compassionate way. But if he says, oh, you're just somehow, whatever words he uses to say it's all your fault, that's a different way. What does he say? when he brings it up um he's super nice and sweet he never ever um uses against me Mm -hmm. but like what he does is like he tries to put the pieces together like let's say we're in an argument and um he did something that upset me and he sits there and he says so maybe you had this experience like about trust issue for example that's what we had last night Mm -hmm. and he said, um, could it be that you had um, this bad experience with your ex and now you want to know what I'm doing on my phone? Um, like when he tries to put the pieces together and yeah. bring the past, uh, that really triggers something in well, me. And, and yeah, I can get where he's coming from and there probably is something there. I don't know. Where Was there infidelity in your marriage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so he definitely could have something there. Now, in the moment when you're angry, when he does that, it could probably feel like he's deflecting him in the, in the whole thing. And mm-hmm. so first, if he can empathize with you and stay with you for a little bit, that'll be better before going and doing the analysis. It can probably make you feel more like he's acting like your therapist than your partner. And that's not what you want. Now, together, I think it's good for you guys to explore these things and to, to see, okay, yeah, maybe... I'm sure you're going to have trust issues related to what happened in your previous relationship and you'll bring them into this relationship. And that's important for you to be aware of and even for you and him to talk about. Um, But I think you don't want from him in those moments when you're having an argument for him to remove himself completely and then analyze you as if he's looking at like a patient rather than staying with you. So that could be part of what you're feeling. And then we're at a commercial break, but I do want to talk to you some more. So I'm going to... ask you to remain on hold and we'll bring you back but what you said before about sharing about ourselves and i hear this a lot from people of course when we talk about sharing important things and serious things from our childhood it's not something that you just open up on the first date or even very early on but if you're in a serious romantic relationship going long term and serious and towards marriage you should know about each other's past and if you're with someone you don't feel comfortable telling about your past that itself is a red flag either that they're the wrong person or you have some kind of issue with trust or vulnerability that's very important that you need to look at and absolutely we shouldn't think that it's going to be used as ammunition against us it can be and that again is a bad sign and a lot of people will tell you don't tell your partner about negative things in your past they're going to use it against you um, this to me comes from a very paranoid and suspicious and non-trusting mindset some people might be that way but if you're with a partner that is that way that's a big problem and it comes from also the mindset of it's going to be me against you so if we have fights, oh, I get to use this to win against you. Well, that's very, very bad place to be starting that I'm thinking of how to beat you. And if your partner 
thinks of it in that way, that is a problem. So to me, when it comes to serious relationship, we have to be able to be open, but openness takes time. We don't start by telling everyone everything right at the beginning, but as we get to know someone, it's important for them to know about our past because it affects us. It helps them know who we are, but also affects how we're going to be in the relationship. But we're going to go to commercial break. I'm going to bring you back and we'll have maybe just a little over the 10 minutes to talk a bit more. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Sure, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duluk. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Hi, yes, I'm here. All right. So we were talking about uh, your relationship of one year, but how you feel that when you get into arguments, this side of you comes out where you get very angry and um, you don't want to say you were wrong in any way or accept being wrong or acknowledge anything. And it brings out a side of you that you didn't like. But as I mentioned before, it almost felt like you were fighting for your life. And it makes sense based on the abuse you talked about in childhood, that being wrong was not something you could accept or was not tolerable for you. And it still feels that way. Um, And I can see that. Now, you were talking about with your boyfriend, how he at times in an argument will start to try to analyze you and tell you, well, you might be feeling this because of this and connecting to your past which, as I mentioned, he likely has points and it makes a lot of sense. But in that moment, it's very undermining of your feelings, which is okay. you're upset and someone's telling you, oh, OK, you're that upset because of this. It's like if you, you know, fell on your hand and your hand was really hurting, you're like, ow, ow, it hurts so much. It's like, oh, you know what? Because you injured your hand three years ago, probably right now it's, it's hurting more than it would have normally if you hadn't injured your hand, which might even be true. But in that moment when you're in so much pain, you don't want to hear about all this. You want someone just to show that they care about your pain. And especially in these situations with him, you feel that he in some way might have caused some of that pain or it's related to him. So it's like he's removing himself completely from the equation, which I could see you don't like as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Okay. Have you talked to him about this That he, when he brings these things up, how you feel? Yeah. So at the beginning, like, like I said... Um, um we have a great connection like we understand each other we like it's like the best thing i've ever experienced Mm -hmm. um and uh, towards the beginning when we were getting to know each other um like i would like share my experiences he was in military he was a marine so he shared his experiences it helped a lot we connected like a lot deeper our connection got a lot deeper but now that he brings it up, like now that we get into arguments and then, and then he brings it up, I never, I never bring it up. But he does it a lot. And when I let him know, he says, I mean, I see he has a lot of good points. Mm-hmm. But like you were saying, I don't want to hear that at the moment. Um, and when I tell him, he understands it. But he also tells me that um, well, that's the truth. That's part of you who you are and that's part of your path and it's going to affect you even if it's like 0.0001 percent but it's still affecting you to, the, to this mm-hmm. day which i see his point but again i don't know if i'm wrong for not wanting to hear it um or well like i said in that moment i can get that you don't want to hear it um but i think he does have a point that if you for example had have experienced infidelity and now you're being trust, having trust issues and even suspicious of him when he's doing nothing wrong, uh, we can get from his perspective that doesn't feel very good either, that if you're constantly, let's say, badgering him about things or wanting to look through his phone and, 
and all of that. Something's going on. And so I get what he's saying, but I can also understand your side. Now, from your side, you are, you're not responsible for what happened to you, the way your mom treated you, obviously not at all. But now you are responsible for what you do with that. So it is very important for you to be working on that very seriously. And I mentioned it before, but I didn't really directly ask you, but have you gone to your own therapy to talk about all this? I have not seen a therapist. Okay. And so that's the part where I'd say that's where it's up to you to take that this more seriously. And you really do deserve it. I'm not saying do it for your boyfriend, but it'll contribute to you just feeling better overall and being good. But it will make your relationships healthier as well as an effect. But I think that's very important. Again, we're not responsible for what's happened to us, but we are responsible for what we do with it. And so now it's up to you to go to therapy and be ready the way you're describing in the very brief ways you described it, what you've been through, it's going to be a long haul. It's not going to be go for a few sessions to fix what's happening or that you've called me and now we've talked 20 minutes or so and it's going to fix things. It's going to take a long time and you have to be ready for that. Uh, Even part of what's going to likely help you heal is to create a trusting relationship with your therapist that will help you feel better and heal some of that unfortunately very painful relationship you had with your mother but that's going to take some time so i would highly recommend that uh, you make that a priority that you get ready to go to therapy it's going to take some time Uh, pick a therapist that you feel a good connection with you feel comfortable with and then once you do go forward with them and be ready for you know even I would say more than a year, but be ready for a long relationship that you're going to build with that person that will help heal a lot of these wounds or at least make it easier for you to deal with what's going on and make things like conflict more tolerable for you. Because without that, likely things won't change very much. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely on my um, to-do list. (laughs) Um, well, you know, things can stay on our to-do list. I probably can find a to-do list on my phone from four years ago that I never looked at again. So what what do you think has gotten in the way of you going to therapy already? Um, well, I have also mentioned this to him. Like, we was, we was talking, not, not in a conflict, just casual talk, that um, I have mentioned that I have anxiety. I have general anxiety. I know that much. Um, and he thinks that um, we can uh, practice becoming more self-aware and we can talk about it. Um, so that's, that's where my head is in the past year. But before that, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of my problems. Another good thing is that this relationship brought a lot of things to the surface. Like I'm, st- like I'm aware of things. Like before my entire 28 years, uh, um, before I met him, mm-hmm. I never apologized to anyone. Now I'm actually apologizing, but it takes yeah. a long time. Well, that's good. I'm, and actually, the first, uh, no, I think I forgot when it was the second or third segment, I talked about having a partner who can serve as a mirror to us. And it seems like he has done that. When you said you've talked about anxiety with him or he's brought that up, he says that he says it's okay to talk about it. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Okay. Has he mentioned going to therapy uh, as a recommendation for you? He doesn't. He doesn't recommend therapy. Okay. Do you think is he okay with it, or do you think he's afraid to even recommend that to you because you might not like it? Um, I'm not 
sure why he doesn't okay. like it. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So he might, and some people don't. I, it's funny, I sometimes hear people talk about they don't believe in therapy as if it's like God or a religion, but um, we're talking about getting treatment to help something that is hurting. So, and there is science showing that it can be helpful. So I would hope you do that. I don't know if he's open to it or not. The way you're describing him, at least he seems a little bit more self-aware than most and about talking about feelings and talking about things that are going on. He's open to it. So he might be open to it, but either way you going to your therapy is about you. Um, and I hope you'll do that. I just was wondering if it's come up in your conversations with him the way you were describing that he's mentioning things about your past or making these kinds of connections or telling you these things and i'm glad you found someone that you're feeling okay apologizing to even though you're saying it's a challenge but as long as you're doing it that's progress and you want to keep doing that um but yeah you you want to definitely go into the therapy and and going back to something you said about sharing with him about your past i would talk to him about it about how you have felt at times that he brings that up at the moments where you don't want him to or you feel like it takes away how you're feeling or invalidates how you're feeling and makes it seem like you're being sensitive or exaggerating in some way or it's related just to your past and nothing happened now to hurt you and that doesn't feel good when you're not feeling good in that moment. Um, But I I don't want you to feel that that was a mistake to share with him your past because it relates to other things I've talked about today. But if you're with someone who can't handle your past or who if they're going to take advantage of you because of your past if you share that with them that's the wrong person to be in a relationship with anyway we want to be with a partner who's not going to use it against us and hurt us and make us feel bad about things we've gone through it's to help us feel understood by them that they can actually help us feel better about some things not as a therapist but as a partner but then also they'll understand us better they'll know and if i know my partner's sensitivities i can be aware of how that's going to affect our relationship at times too Yes, I hope they'll work on them. But in the meantime, also, I'll know, for example, if your partner has a bad knee, you'll make sure not to bump against that knee or suggest doing an activity that might hurt them because of that knee. You have that awareness. Now, if you don't want to be with someone that has that, that's up to you. But at least you have that understanding. So I hope you won't regret sharing with him about your past because it's the only way we can really have a close relationship with someone is if they know what's happened to us and they understand us and they know what we've been through. So I hope you'll never regret that part. Um, but I really hope you'll think about going in. And my guess is you're also resisting going in because going into therapy can be difficult. And with everything you've gone through, you know that it will be. Because if you're listening to my dad's show, you're listening to my show, clearly you're psychologically minded, but you've avoided going into your own therapy. So I hope rather than putting it on your to-do list, you'll do it now. Even when we get off the phone, look into what you'd have to do to get that started as soon as possible. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Funny enough. I have uh, uh, my bachelor's in clinical psychology okay. back in Iran. Uh-huh. So uh, I, you are right. You're definitely like I only scratch the surface. Of sure. And that's all we can do on our own. Yeah. And I'm actually yeah. sorry to cut you off. It's just that I'm looking at the time and I do have to get off the air. But yeah, I'm sure you're resisting it in some way. And I hope you'll go in and give yourself that and see how that goes. But thanks for calling. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. We've reached the end of the show again this Saturday. Hope to see you at the Dolby Theater for our fifth anniversary celebration of Radio Hamra. Thank you to Ghazale, who was in the studio to start the show, and Farhud, who's here with me now. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lokwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm